I liken it to the McDonald's example, right? So McDonald's is a real estate company that makes cheeseburgers. <laughs> and, you know, 20% of their revenues come from franchisees and sales and burgers. The other 80% is real estate, right? They've got $40 billion of real estate assets. Um, I look at my property management business really as the cheeseburgers. I don't have one without the other. Um, and they kind of go hand in hand. So if I run a property management company for 20 years and I don't actively invest or buy single family or multifamily, um, I'm missing out on 80% of the potential wealth creation uh, and profit. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Wella, and I am here with Ralph Reard. Ralph, thanks for coming on the show. Jordan, thanks for having me. First time, long time. First, first time to be on the show, but I've been listening for years, so thanks for all the great content, what you do for the property management tribe. I appreciate that, man. So for those that don't know, give us some context on the business as it stands today. What market, unit count, staff size? Sure. Uh, I'm based out of Richmond, Virginia. I own a real property management franchise there. We just opened our second location in Stanton, Virginia, about 90 miles away. So between the two, we have just over 1,200 units under management. Uh, staff of 27. We do a lot of in-house maintenance, um, but got in the business in 2014. Great. And how did you get into the business? Just dumb luck. Uh, woke up one day. I already had two rental properties. I was looking for a property management company. I uh, didn't see anything that I liked in my market. And like a lot of foolish entrepreneurs, I thought I can do this myself. Um, How grabbed, hard can it be? Right, right. I grabbed the safety net of a franchise agreement back then and uh, thought that would give me a better chance for success. And it really has. It's been a great partnership. How do you like the the, the uh, Richmond market in particular? What's What do you think is unique or distinct about that market? Richmond is... A great town. I mean, it's got a lot of tailwinds. We've got some Fortune 500 companies there, Capital One, CarMax. We're a state capital. Uh, that helps. We've got a lot of government jobs. Uh, Virginia Commonwealth University is huge. They've got 40,000 undergrad in downtown. And my alma mater is there, the University of Richmond. Uh, go Spiders. I, I see the connection here. You represent today. That's all right. I am. We uh, made the NCAA tournament for the first time since 2011. So I was, uh, wasn't even in real estate back then. It's been so long. So we're, we were excited. We won the first round and got smoked in the second round. But that, That's no small feat. Yeah. So one of the reasons that we connected is you reached out and you communicated that some of, based on a episode, a previous episode that you had listened to, you had take some, taken some steps to empower and enable to create some opportunity for your staff as it relates to real estate investment. Tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely. It was actually, oddly enough, I was down at PM Grow in Austin on the flight down. I listened to Profitable Property Management, um, and I forgot who you'd interviewed, but somebody else. Mike Schrafer. Mike Schrafer, that's right. And uh, he mentioned he was investing with his team members and kind of showing them the ropes and um, would do a lot of the work and do it as an educational seminar where they would buy a property over the eight-week course. And I thought, man, what a great idea. Um, I was already an investor in buying stuff myself. And I thought, how can I get my team excited about this? Um, if I run a property management company for 20 years and 
you know, buy a hundred doors or 200 doors. That's great for me and my family, but what have I done to add value to my staff? So I was passionate about helping them. Um, when we created, we call it the RPM AF. So that stands for acquisition fund and we just do joint ventures. So each employee sets up their LLC, they get 30% sweat equity. I bring the capital and the expertise. I sign on the note. So it's non-recourse to them, uh, but it's a way for them to dip their toe in, um, and it's created a lot of excitement and, and it's also helped with staff turnover, right? So you've got to be with us for two years and it's your two year anniversary. Uh, we'll get together. We'll go over an operating agreement, set up an LLC and go out and find a rental property. What does adoption and uptake look like? Adoption has been a hundred percent, right? So it's not, you're saying a hundred percent of staff members. Yes. It's not optional. So once you hit two years with us, we're going to go do it. Um, and you know, you're not really investing any money. You're just, um, investing your time to help find the property. Bird dog, find Bird the dog. deal. Yep, find the deal. Talk to different insurance brokers, uh, debt providers. You know, I really selfishly, I love single family rentals. I'm passionate about it. I love investing, but I started doing bigger and bigger deals and I didn't have time to go chase down a $150,000 Burr property. Um, but my teammates, really did. And we're excited about it. So it was a way for me to stay involved and get 70% of a house that a deal I never would have done. And and they're getting some equity. So um, it's really been a, a win-win. And um, we had a lot of legal expertise to structure it the right way, but um, it's been great. So. What's the buy box for these types of properties for this scenario? Yeah. So we're typically looking at a Burr property. So we, we fish in our own pond. We look through our client base. If there's somebody looking to sell, you know, would they entertain an off-market offer? Um, but anything we can get 70 to 80% below market, and then we'll do a, you know, $20,000 renovation. I'll fund that with cash. We'll refinance the property. Um, and a lot of times, you know, you might get stuck. You'll, I'll leave five, $6,000 in there. Um, if we didn't hit our numbers, right, the appraisal came in low or, or maybe the rehab went over. So in that case, my six thousand dollars gets paid back out of cash flow first, and then that next dollar we split seventy thirty. So this is one format of investment. You did this on the heels of the investments that you've already done. One of the reasons that I wanted to have you on was to talk about your personal investing. I'm intensely interested in the wealth creation comparison that can be made between an operating going concern like a property management business versus the passive investment, active to some degree, right. on the real estate side. Talking with folks that are working so hard, optimizing, improving, growing their business, which is the nature of the entrepreneurial endeavor, it's, it's a bit of a head trip. To know that there is a huge amount of wealth that can be created in real estate, but the dynamic is so different because it doesn't, it is not this endless outlet for improvement and optimization, and yet you're getting a big yield. It breaks the mental paradigm that may not be stated, but is intuited, which is that effort is the uh, byproduct of effort is the source of all good things. And there's truth in that. I believe in hustle. But there's some wiring of maybe a misguided message in entrepreneurship, which is like every good thing is just going to come through raw, unadulterated hustle. And in some ways, real estate kind of breaks that paradigm. Talk to me about what personally pulled you into real estate and what the wealth creation contribution of that has looked like as juxtaposed against your successful property management company. Right. That's a great point, Jordan, and, and a good question. I think, you know, I liken it to the McDonald's example, right? So McDonald's is a real estate company that's 
makes cheeseburgers. And, you know, 20% of their revenues come from franchisees and sales and burgers. The other 80% is real estate, right? They've got $40 billion of real estate assets. Um, I look at my property management business really as the cheeseburgers. I don't have one without the other. Um, and they kind of go hand in hand. So if I run a property management company for 20 years and I don't actively invest or buy single family or multifamily, um, I'm missing out on 80% of the potential wealth creation uh, and profit. So that's, I, brother, I just want to park it right there. That's, yeah. I'm not going to say that's controversial, but that's, a, that's not a trivial point. And you're saying that not uh, as an esoteric theory, like you're in it. You have a very successful property management company at scale. And you're saying, eh, like in the big picture, right. that, that's not the nut. That's the side dish. Right. The steak's over here. This is, this is the, you know, this is the potatoes. This is some parsley. Correct. Yeah. I hadn't looked at it that way. It's more than parsley. But, uh, you know, I, it's a cliche, but I stand on the shoulders of giants. If I didn't have great property managers and team members in place, I couldn't go out and do all this fun stuff. So, um, but it is, you know, the equity guys are the ones that are equity guys and gals are the ones that are making most of the money uh, on these deals. And how, I did learned, you, how did you come to that conclusion? I, you know, I had a client and we watched him. He had 20 apartments in downtown Richmond. Um, they were class C minus, just really gross. 50% occupied. We were getting low fees. We spent 18 months with this guy as he rehabbed them, got them all built up. And finally, I'm like, great, we're going to finally get some management fees here. I was smart. I locked him into a three-year agreement. And uh, as soon as we hit stabilization, he sold it and made a million-dollar profit. And I said, man, that stings, right? I worked so hard and had terrible fees and lost money the whole way. And this guy walked with a million dollars. And I said, I can probably figure this out. And that's when I started really creating strategic partnerships and you know working with investors. So. So slowly but surely, you're building it up to what? What does the portfolio look like now? Sure. Um, so I was interviewed with by a local business blog when I opened the business in 2014. And I, you know, it's an entrepreneur. So I don't want to buy five houses a year. I thought that was an awesome goal. Um, fast forward seven years now, we're up to over 350 units. That's a mix. It's about 70 single family homes, the rest are apartment units. Um, and my average ownership is about 28%. So I made the decision I wanted to have a smaller portion of a big business rather than a bigger portion of a, of a small business. So, um, and it, it wasn't really intentional. I kind of got started uh, with my business partner, Ali Samir, who came from uh, a debt underwriting background. So he was working with commercial lenders. He was on the other side of the fence looking at the equity guys making all the money. I was on the property management side watching the equity guys make the money and, um, and we just connected. So he was in town looking at a 18 unit deal. Uh, it was about $2.8 million in downtown Richmond. He's younger than me. And I was like, how is this guy going to buy this, you know, big property? It was like a big boy project. And um, so we went, we consulted on what rents would be. And, um, and I said, I just pulled him aside after I said, can we get coffee? I want to find out, you know, I know the down payment's going to be around 900000 I was like, how are you guys raising money? How are you doing this? Um, and I give, they, they had a lot of guts. He said, listen, we've got about $150,000 um, of cash, but we're going to go out and raise the rest. And they've got this big property under contract. And, you know, that's, that'll phrase jump and the net will appear. 
they were doing that. And I said, man, how can I help these guys out? Um, and I said, well, I would love to come in. If you'll let me, I'll, I'll put in 50,000. And I started thinking about it. You know, a lot of my clients have told me, if you see a deal, let me know. They had small multifamily. And then I, I went to Ali. I said, hey, I've got two other people that want to come in for 300,000. So all of a sudden I went from being a property manager to an equity provider. And they now had 450 of the 900,000 they needed. It made the rest of the raise a lot easier, right? Hey, my property manager likes to steal so much. He's coming in. Um, and the rest of it got raised within a, a couple of weeks. So it was really, I just wanted a seat at the table to learn. And I committed some capital and added value. And you better believe when they went and bought another property, uh, I tagged along as well and um, got on the, the general partner side of that one. Um, but again, it's boosting the management company. We're adding doors. We're getting some nice fees along the way and gaining equity. So really a, a triple win. So, you know, I'm a golfer through and through. That's my background. I was actually a, a golf professional before I got into real estate. And it reminds me of a story. Lee Trevino said that uh, pressure is a $10 bet when you only have $2 in your pocket. And that's what this guy Ali and Kevin did was they, you know, they had 150000 There's no way they're going to be able to buy this $3 million building. But they jumped in and I was lucky enough to help them do that. So had a lot of respect for them for taking that leap. And then we've kind of done that and repeated that process. Love that story. Love the metaphor. Back to the previous metaphor of the McDonald's paradigm. I want to suss out what you're getting at here because it can sound like at first that PM, not important, the REI, very important. What is the symbiotic relationship between these things? What advantage are you at that somebody else, like say somebody like me, I don't own a, don't own a management company. What advantage are you at relative to your ability to facilitate and scale the game that you're playing? Right. It is hand in glove, right? And I'm not belittling any of the property management work we do. That's very important. You can't be a successful syndicator unless you've got operations to back it up. And also that kind of insider knowledge of market rents, expenses, you know, with that property I referenced earlier, we already had five similar ones that we were managing. Um, so we knew what the expenses were, we could help them with their model. Um, and actually, a lot of investors aren't capable of closing on these properties because lenders want to see your background, your bio, your track mm, record mm. to be sure that you know what you're doing. You're not a hobbyist. Right. Exactly. So every commercial broker in town probably has a story of, hey, I had this buyer under contract, but it fell through because they didn't have the expertise. You know, as a property manager, you put your bio in with the syndicator or the general partner who's got the equity. Um, it's more compelling to the lender. They feel like their money is safe. We're able to get better terms. So that's really the advantage. And it's you can't have one without the other. McDonald's doesn't have the real estate unless they've got the, the product to sell. What is the advantage to being minority versus majority? You managed an average, mentioned an average of 28% ownership. I'm sure in some cases you're above and below the 50% mm -hmm. threshold. What are the yep. advantages on either side? So... With a typical syndication, you've got a general partner who's sponsoring the deal. They're usually going to sign on the note. So if the deal goes south, um, they're responsible for that debt to the bank. Uh, limited partners aren't. Their investment is non-recourse. So if you put in 50000 that's all you're risking. Um, so those are kind of the, the main differences. As the syndicator or the general partner, there's some other fees that come in. Uh, through your operating agreement, you may spell out an acquisition fee, you know, one to 3% of the purchase price. Um, you may get a waterfall. 
that's where your incentives are aligned if you perform. So you may say, Mr. Investor, we're projecting an 8% cash on cash return. Um, we're going to guarantee that it's a preferred return, you know, for the first five years of the hold. Well, if in year two, the property is is spinning off 10% cash, that last 2% gets split up, right? So the general partner may get 30% of that, the limited partner gets 70%. So your incentives are aligned and that's where operations are so huge and why property managers are really poised to do well if you can can learn the skill set. What advice or feedback do you have on entity structure? Where do all these investments sit for you? That's a great question. And as each deal we do gets bigger and bigger, the legal fees jump up. The last one, um, I might choke a little bit when I say this, but it was about 76000 in in legal fees. Just to get the deal done. To get the deal done. It was a tax credit project with you know, different structures and partnerships and six different documents. So and of course, there were four different attorneys involved and that stuff adds up. So each one is different. And I, I enjoy that too. That's kind of the fun of learning. You know, one of these deals typically takes 90 days to put together. And it's just like putting together a puzzle or doing a group project in college, which I know everybody hated, but you've got to bring in the equity guys. You've got to talk to lenders. You've got to have the right insurance. So how do I get all these pieces to work? to provide the return that we want. And if they don't, then it's time to, you know, back out of the deal um, or renegotiate before, you know, the, the end of due diligence. So any more feedback on like the specific entity structure or the vehicle? Sure. So most of the time it'll be an LLC with, um, you know, you'll have what's called a schedule a on the back end and it outlines who's putting in what capital and what their role is going to be. So as the, syndicator or general partner in that operating agreement, you're typically going to be the manager, right? You've got control. The limited partner is going to be a member. So they've got to kind of do what the manager says, right? I'm the expert in property management. Ali's the expert in, in debt sourcing and underwriting. So we make the call as to when to refinance the property, when to sell it. Um, so again, as a limited partner, you're giving up control, but you're trading it for expertise and really a hands-off experience. How do you think about investing in your market versus others? Previous answer, great advantage to have the PM function. It has to be had somewhere. Have you invested exclusively in the Richmond market? Have you made any investments elsewhere? And how have you handled third-party management that you couldn't facilitate yourself? Uh, that's a great question. And starting out, I was like, man, I just want to build accounts, right? I need more doors under management, right? More doors is more money. So, And then I realized, well... I can probably get a better return if I look at another market. And so now I've got property in Maryland. I work with a different property manager there. Uh, Indiana, we're big in making Georgia. Um, but I want to know that operator. I'm not going to just pick a market and go there because I like it. I want to find the right person to partner with and the right property manager. Um, and, and make sure that you take care of them. And I want to be their best client. So we've done... We've got 40 units down in Macon, Georgia right now. Uh, that story I talked about renovating a 20-unit property and getting no fees, watching the the owner take take a million-dollar paycheck home. You know, we're doing the same thing down in Macon. We're renovating 20 apartments. Um, but I told my property manager down there, Ben, that, hey, at the end of this, if we can refi out or sell this, I'm going to give you a $10,000 bonus for running this project for me. So... Now I'm one of his favorite clients, right? He's getting fees, he's getting his markup on maintenance, but there's this light at the end of the tunnel that he's gonna get paid um, and then hopefully help find me another deal, so. 
back to the symbiotic relationship relationship between these things, your conversancy, your insight on the investment side, what does it do for the PM company in terms of your ability to have a, maybe a different quality and caliber of conversation with prospective owners? Right. As a property manager, you want to be the expert in real estate. And I, I think residential real estate, single family rentals, fix and flip, you know, that's real estate 101. What we're doing is more commercial transactions in so real estate 301. And it just helps them get comfortable with you in a hurry. And, and even commercial brokers want to refer you business um, because they want their deal to close. And if they've got a buyer that comes to them and says, hey, we're bringing money in from San Francisco or D.C., they need a property manager. They want to call somebody that knows what they're doing and can talk that language and make them look good. So that's helped out a lot. And also, it's led to opportunities where I can invest as a limited partner with in their syndication. And this is a this one's top of mind because it just happened today. But I invested as a limited partner in a deal. It was three point two million, uh, twenty four units in Richmond. And again, I think we won that management account because I knew what I was talking about. I could, I knew what their business plan was. We were going to charge for parking, get it up to market rent, um, and then increase the NOI. So that's going to drive value. So we, we did that over 18 months. We've managed it and I came in for a hundred thousand. So I've got a, a limited partnership stake. And at first it was kind of counterintuitive, right? Why am I going to invest in a competing syndicator? Because, you know, I want to save that capital for my own deals, right? I'm going to go sponsor a deal. I need a down payment, but I really just wanted to network and learn from these guys. And so I came in this property, we got it up to market. We started charging for parking and it just hit the market today for 4.8 million. So if you're a property manager and you hear, man, my 24 unit building is going to be sold. Mm. That's a gut punch. I mean, that stinks. That mm -hmm. sucks. Mm -hmm. um, but I've also got equity in there. So, we help them perform in their on their business plan. When that property sells, you know maybe we'll keep it. Maybe the buyer will use us because um, we've proven that we've performed. But I'm gonna get a nice, you know, three x return on my equity that I invested. So that softens the blow a little bit, and that gives us a runway to to do more deals. And these guys, you know, they may reinvest their profits back into another deal in Richmond, or or who knows. But it was a way that you know I could help them um, and then and learn as well. Ralph, every trade or craft requires a specific set of, of specific material hard skills, being a coach, a pilot, a school teacher, a property manager. What is the distinction that you would tease out in between the hard skills required to run and build a successful property management company versus being a successful syndicator? That's a great question. The skill sets are you know, they're varied. And that's where my partnership with Ali has really been instrumental is he's strong on underwriting, figuring out how this property is going to perform, sourcing debt. He understands there's 15 different things you can negotiate with a commercial lender. Um, and then, you know, my skill sets are more in networking and raising capital and handling the operations and hiring great people. So it's, varying skills and I don't have them all and I don't think anybody does. So you got to find ways to, you know, recognize where you're weak and find somebody that can, can fill that gap. What do you have to say about partnerships? Partnerships in real estate are 
similar, but not quite a parallel of a partnership and a, and a going concern. Nonetheless, there's a, a large surface area for failure. What's been your experience? What's your advice on who to choose to do a deal with and under what circumstances? Yeah, there's an old phrase that if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I, I, I take a lot of heed in that because it's for me, it's more fun to create these relationships and partnerships. So at each deal, we may bring in two or three new investors that somebody you know new in my Rolodex. We'll take them out for a, a closing dinner, say thank you, um, and it just kind of feeds on itself. So the next time out, maybe there's more people. So you're growing your network, um, and people may invest in every single deal with you. They may do one or two and move on, and and that's fine. And that's why I like these, um, you know, these projects are uh, anywhere from a three to seven year hold, and um, you know, so it's not like you're starting an operating company and, you know, Jordan and Ralph are going to go work together for the next 25 years. It's, hey, we're going to work together for 90 days to get this closed. We'll check in quarterly or annually, let you know how the investment's doing. And if you want to come back again, great. If not, you know, hopefully we've provided a nice return and you've learned something from from partnering with us. Let's pause here to talk a little bit about the PM Syndication Summit. This is an event that you're hosting later in the year, specifically catering to property management professionals that are interested in developing the capabilities and the capacities that we're talking about. Tell me a little bit about the format, the agenda. What are people uh, going to be showing up in Richmond later this year for? Sure. Uh, thanks for that. So we're hosting the uh, PM Syndication Summit. Uh, that'll be a two and a half day event in Richmond, May 18th, 19th, and 20th. Um, and we've got property managers uh, coming in from around the country to learn how to do this. And uh, there'll be educational formats. We've got other speakers coming in. Uh, my partner, Ali, and I will be providing a roadmap of how you can um, get started and learn the ins and outs of underwriting, um, how to find a deal, how to you know, convert equity partners, get soft commitments, structure it uh, legally and go through all those steps. So it'll help people that want to be general partners or syndicators. It'll help um, property managers that want to be limited partners like I've done and create um, strategic clients that are going to be buying more and more deals um, and help them learn the language of commercial real estate. So it, I'm, I'm passionate about it. It kind of came up. Uh, there was another real property management franchise last year out in Sioux Falls that hosted about 20 franchisees out for a, a training session on some large multifamily stuff. And was that it, Express? Uh, it was. Mm -hmm. Yep. So uh, Josh Kattenberg and Merlin Huff did a great job. And um, I just kind of wanted to return the favor. So I said, guys, if you'll come to Richmond, you know, we'll teach on this stuff. And it was something I thought more people were doing. And as I started talking, it was like I was speaking Chinese. They didn't quite get it. And um, so I think that's where we want to do is we want to give everybody the secret sauce and let you go home and find deals in your market. And, um, you know, Ali and I've actually agreed to give away a hundred thousand dollars of equity. So if you, if you do come, we want you to go home and pitch us on a deal and we'll come in as your loan sponsor. Uh, we'll put up a hundred thousand dollars and we'll help you knock out that first deal. So this is going to be low to the ground, nuts and bolts, breaking down deals, walking through specific processes. Are we, are we going to look at some properties? Yes, absolutely. So we've got a couple projects. One we just closed on. It's in lease up right now is a tax credit project. And then another one that's under development. We're redeveloping an old warehouse into 42 apartments. And we'll show you how we met those developers, how we pitched them on adding value. And so as a property manager, it's nice to know that, yes, there's some churn here in the market, but I've got 42 units that are 
coming online uh, in October, and we'll go out and tour that and, and learn how we, we got into that side of the business too. I'm planning on being there. I'm bringing a number of my staff members. And if you're listening to this right now, come show up. This could be a disproportionate impact on what you're doing relative to your career. I don't say this very often. Ralph's not paying me anything to say this. <laughs> I strongly endorse and recommend showing up. I think this is going to be extremely interesting. I think this is one of those things where folks have thought about it. It seems both obvious and in some ways like a giant pain in the ass. Right. Because what are we talking about? It's ambiguous. It's it's both within striking distance and not quite there. So right. to to not only have some of the specifics, but maybe the inspiration around accessibility, I think is going to be huge. At the end of the name, the name of the game here is wealth creation. People are in business to make a buck, want to have a good time, want to have meaningful relationships. But let's be honest, we're all commercially minded. If there is non-parity between the opportunity through real estate investment versus running a going concern, if the if the delta is as big as what we're talking about, this this feels like really a non-negotiable opportunity to show up. That's the end of that pitch. Perfect. Let's, let's get back to what we were talking about. Thank you. So, Ralph, you've done uh, this work in this space with RAI and with property management. Let's talk about ancillary business units. There's title, mortgage, maintenance company, HOA, short-term, commercial. It just goes on and on and on. Property management is connected to so many different things. Have you entertained or engaged in any of these other ancillary business units? What are your thoughts on the possibilities there? Uh, to answer your question, no, I haven't. Um, I really wanted my side hustle, if you would, to add value and doors to the management business. And that's where real estate investing and syndication stood out above all those others. Those are all great. You're going to, it's another operating company with fees, but you're not, you know, gaining equity. You don't get all the benefits of real real estate ownership. So we do a lot of our maintenance in house. That's like having another business. Um, but you know, we don't do a ton of brokerage. We, so all those other title and insurance, those kind of things haven't been on my radar. And I know there's a lot of folks that are making a lot of money doing that, but, um, we just stay in our, in our lanes. Focus. That's right. That's beautiful. Yep. Let's talk about the operating company. The basic underpinning of a property management business is in large part its unit economics. Mm -hmm. If you have a low revenue per unit, it's just hard to make any money, no matter how great of a job you're right. doing, how well-intentioned you are. Where is your revenue per unit at, ballpark? Uh, we're over 3,000 a door. 3,000 per door per year. Mm -hmm. Got it. So if you, if you think about the evolution where did you start and what helped you get to that number? I will admit, I couldn't tell you where we started because I didn't, I didn't track it back then. I didn't know enough uh, to know that that was important. I was just trying to, um, like a lot of people, I thought the more doors, the more money. And I was a little bit foolish um, in that. So it was just kind of a, a constant race. We did a couple small acquisitions. We bought out some competitors, um, but I really didn't track it as much as I should have. But, you know, right now we're doing a lot of things that um, you see all the other great property management companies doing. So Second Nature, um, you know, RBP. RBP, all that stuff. Um, and, you know, I think our that number is a little high because we do a lot of our maintenance in-house. So we capture a lot of that as income. What are the sympathies that your investor status give you relative to fee maxing? Fee maxing has almost been, it's been beat to death. It's, right. it's, it's borderline 
uh, obnoxious to be talking about in right. some sense, even though I like, I deeply believe in revenue optimization mm -hmm. as the path towards making enough money to provide great service. That said, right. some of the, uh, all fees are not created equal. Right. What fees have you seen that as an investor, you think, you know, ouch, uh, I'm not sure what the value there is. Yeah. I started out that way. That was my belief, right? I was an investor. I started with my own rental properties. I didn't want to pay for that. And then as I scaled and added staff, it was like, this is ridiculous. I'm, you know, losing money on maintenance and I'm paying people to, you know, fix their properties up. So it was, you know, over time I got more comfortable with it, but, um, you know, as an investor, our deals, they pay a market rate management fee. They pay the, the same, you know, markups and, um, so as long as you can create the value and hit the returns that you've promised, it's going to be a win-win. So let's talk about vendor management. What best practices do you employ? How do you manage those relationships? There's so much heartache. Vendors are hard to come by. I don't know what to do. Take, do I, do I take it in house to get the control back? How do you get the most out of those relationships? Yeah, it, it was a challenge and it's always a challenge. Um, I think that is, uh, one of the the headwinds I see in this industry is the lack of skilled trades and the aging, you know, the, whatever the status, the average plumber in America is 53 or um, don't quote me on that. I'm shooting from the hip here. But um, that's a problem over time because your property value is based on your net operating income. And if your inputs for labor materials go up, um, that's going to squeeze those returns. So I see that as a, as a threat. That's why we've brought more maintenance in house. We've got seven trucks on the road in Richmond, Virginia. They're beautiful, branded with RPM and neighborly. And, you know, that was a way just to get that control back, provide better service to the residents and mitigate some of that risk of rising costs in the, in the field. Bryn here from Lead Simple. I love Lead Simple, but that feels like a given. Instead of telling you why I love it, here's Sarah Hatch from Hatch Property Management. We're very happy and I recommend so many people to Lead Simple because I'm like, oh my gosh, it changed our world. <laughs> it totally changed our whole way of uh, managing properties and staying in contact. It's the best business investment I've ever made. To learn more and connect with one of my teammates, go to leadsimple.com slash podcast today. Tell me more in terms of just like the personal aspect, how personal do you get with the vendors? Does that make a difference? Like the relational side of it, what does that look like for you? You know, it's starting out um, like any small business. I, I liked the talk yesterday at NARPM about phase one, two, three, and four. Um, you know, phase one, I knew every vendor. They had my cell phone number. Um, they would stop by the office to pick up checks and, you know, you're in the middle of a leasing transaction. They're like, Hey, where's my $80 check for cutting the grass, you know, on main street. And it's, it just got to be too much. So I've kind of removed myself from that. Um, we've got a, you know, full-time dedicated, um, maintenance supervisor that all he does is vendor relationships. So when he brings in a new vendor, they do three work orders with us. He gets a bonus for bringing them in. So it's a way to just not get complacent and say, oh, I've used this plumber forever. I'm going to keep using them. We want to keep them actively looking for new partnerships. And so we, we don't want to give, you know, one vendor 80% of our plumbing business, for example. What lessons have you had to learn the hard way as it relates to being a manager leading through other leaders? 
Great question. I at the University of Richmond, I studied leadership studies. That was a leadership studies major. Yes, that is a thing. The Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and we talked about for four years if leaders are born or made. So luckily, I've been comfortable in that role and just about every job I've had. And that's one of my assets is managing people and creating opportunity and taking care of them. So um, it, it is a challenge as as the business grows. There's you know, it used to be five employees in one room. And now there's you know, employees that we've hired that, you know, I've only met once or twice. And um, so I've had to kind of let go of that a little bit. Um, but I think that's you know an important part of scaling and growing. Tell me more delegation. It's like easier said than done. Competent. It, it's it's built upon the premise of having competent people to delegate to. Right. Right. Let's 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 keep it real. Let's not be delusional. Delegation to incompetent people. It's not a gain. It's not a best practice. Mm -hmm. In terms of the recruiting component, what's worked? Have you brought in? Have you brought in external leaders? Have you done homegrown? What have you done to fill out that management team that allows you to execute on the idea of delegation? Right. It's been, um, I've been lucky to hire a lot of folks from my Facebook friend list. And, um, you know, as we've grown, you know, those relationships, I've kind of created opportunities for them to learn not just about real estate investing, but also how to, you know, work within our team and our system at real property management. But it's been, it, for me, it was really just like every business function that I just got so tired of, I couldn't do it again. I was like, I need to hire for that person. So, you know, two years in, I said, if I take another maintenance call, I'm going to pull my hair out. So I need a maintenance director. And then I delegated all that. And so for six months, I would kind of oversaw every work order. And then I got comfortable. I just kind of phased out to where I don't log into property mail anymore. Sorry, Ray. Uh, but we have a lot of uh, folks that do and they're in it every day. So it was just kind of the same thing with business development. I said, I can't grow my business as fast as I want if I'm in a kitchen you know, across the island from a, you know, accidental landlord. So I need a BDM. And that was the last business function I let go of. And I think that was a mistake because I just enjoyed it. Um, but it, that's kind of how I delegated was it was what was my pain point? Who can solve this for me? Um, and then just step out of the way over time. Ralph, how do you handle the enforcement of your performance standards? How do you police quality? How do you handle terminations when invariably that sort of unpleasant thing does come up? Yep. So I've got a general manager, uh, Sarah Adams, that kind of handles a lot of the HR stuff for us. So um, we've got KPIs around you know, leasing and maintenance and reviews, um, business development. So we do a, a Monday check-in call on a Zoom and everybody reports back, you know, how they're doing on towards their goals. Are they ahead or behind? Um, you know, we've had to terminate some folks over the years that just weren't a good fit. Um, never an easy conversation to have, but um, you know, one you want to do sooner rather than later. And we've got um, going back, you mentioned our employee partnership, right? Where, where I own property with mm -hmm. our employees. Um, you know, I've had three of those that I invested with an employee and it didn't work out, right? They moved on or um, got out of the business and we had structured it in a way where you know, I had the option to buy them out um, at a nominal fee or they've really they've got to stay for five years for that interest to fully vest. So it was, you know, kind of a tough conversation to have. Hey, I understand you're leaving. You want to get into, you know, real estate sales full time. That's great. I wish you all the best. Your equity, you know, 
has another three years before it vests. So that's going to revert back to the house. So my stake went from 70% to 100%. And it's nothing against them. It's just if, you know, five, six years down the road, I may not want to be in a partnership with you. Um, so we, it, we were careful in the way we structured that. Have you ever had an employee leave and start a competing company? I have not. Have you ever had an employee steal from the business? No, I have not. True. Let's go ahead and just <laughs> right here. You're scaring me now. <laughs> what is one of the, uh, what's the lowest point for you in this journey of property management and investing professionally? Tell me one tale of something that blew up and cost you something. Um, I mean, there's always days as an entrepreneur where things just aren't going your way. Phone's not ringing and, you know, tenants are mad at you, owners are mad. Um, you know, you had your maintenance tech painted the house the wrong color. So you're out, you know, two grand to repaint it, things like that. It's just, you know, you look at your profit per door and then you just blew $2,000 on a paint job. You're like, man, I'm going to manage this for free for the next five years to cover this. So things like that get under your skin. And I just, you know, keep a even keel. I'd rather, you know, write the check and, um, and just move on. It's something we learned early on is how to compartmentalize, not take things personally. We hammer that down to our team as well. It's easy to feel like a punching bag. Um, but I think that that would be the lowest is just those, those weeks that every entrepreneur goes through where you're like, man, this just isn't working. So, so on the flip side of that, what gives you stamina right now? What's the part of the business that you're currently really loving that's lighting you up and giving you the will to, to, to maintain your edge? Yeah, I think just learning. I mean, I, I really am passionate about lifelong learning and each deal I learned something new and uh, I want to share that. And that's why we're doing this summit is, you know, how can I, share it with my team. We've been doing that for five years, teaching them how to invest. How can I help other property managers, you know, learn how to syndicate deals and grow their business. So it's, um, you know, it's both. And it's, I love, uh, you know, helping our clients, but if you're, you know, there's not a ton of value there, right? You've got a high net worth individual. They're going to be wealthy, you know, regardless, you're giving them another investment vehicle. Um, and that's great. You feel good about providing that return. But if I can teach somebody else how to do it and change their life, that's really what I'm passionate about. When you think about simplicity versus complexity in a deal, simplicity generally is a higher bar than complexity. It requires more forethought to take something hard and reduce it down to a really simple, beautiful, convenient structure that isn't overly simple. What are red flags for you when you see an unnecessary level of complexity in a deal? Well, they're all complex. I mean, it's um, and it seems like they're, they're getting more complex as the scale is is increasing. Right. How do you how do you suss out when this is appropriate, useful complexity when it's just right. a pain in the neck and surface area for un unnecessary problems? Right. I think you know that that would be one of my faults is that I have a hard time you know saying no to stuff. It's like, do you want to develop a ground up two hundred and fifty unit Class A apartment building? Absolutely. I'm going to jump in and figure that out. Um, and literally, I met, and this is a conversation I had last week, and that's way out of my comfort zone. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know where the, the breaking point is, but I want to continue to challenge myself and learn that. And there's, you know, a lot of folks out there that are willing to help you. Um, and that's, yeah, that's exciting. Let's talk about some of those vendor components. You talked about spending quite a bit of money 
on legal. There's legal, there's mm -hmm. financing. For somebody that's wanting to execute on this in their market, how do they go about finding these relationships? How specialized do these relationships need to be? I have an uncle that's attorney. I have a brother-in-law who you know sells residential mortgages. Right. How do you go about finding the right people to partner um, on the vendor side specifically? Yeah, I mean, it's you kind of start within your network and then you outgrow those folks or, or find a, another specialist they can introduce you to. You know, we had a good closing attorney that did all of our single family stuff. And then we did a larger commercial deal and the closing was kind of a nightmare. I mean, it just, things just qu didn't quite get done. And we said, listen, we need a, a, a excuse me, an attorney that specializes in commercial real estate. And, you know, I said, listen, this, was great. It was kind of a shit show, but what can we do differently? And so we just, you know, hired, found a new attorney that dealt with, you know, larger deals um, and for higher fees, of course. Um, and then, you know, the same thing on the insurance side. I mean, we we shop everything on the the debt side. That I can't stress how important that is. Um, you know, we'll go to the last deal we closed. We went to eleven different debt providers to find the best rate and terms that would fit our business plan. So it's um, you can't just get you know, roped into one commercial lender because their rates may be good on the first deal. And then the next time out, they're not so great. So we really shop that and, and negotiate aggressively. How, what are the margins like? How important is that shopping that you're referencing? Is that just like, hey, the best deal is the best deal? Or was it was that was the margin tight enough that that was fundamentally imperative to get the deal done? It's, it, yeah, it's fun. It's always important to place the right debt. And it's not necessarily the rate, but, you know, what's the prepayment penalty? How long? Um, do I have on this? And we've got, and it can really handcuff you. We've got sellers in our portfolio now that can't liquidate their asset because they've got a million dollar prepayment penalty. Um, and so they thought, well, my property, my 34 units have gone up in value, but no buyer is going to pay that million dollar prepayment. And, you know, you promised that lender a certain return on that loan. You've got seven years left on that term. So you got to sit tight. Um, you know, so those are things to, to think about and people get attracted to those cause it's, it may be non-recourse. Um, but what's, what's in the fine print and that can really, you know, hurt you cause it's like, Hey, this is a great time to sell apartments, but they can't. Talk to me about timing. What has the current financial economic environment done for your investing? What do you anticipate over the next 24 months? Nobody really knows, but right. what do you see happening and how do you think those trends will impact your how active you are as an sure. investor? Yeah, I mean, we've seen a lot of cap rate compression in Richmond, right? So prices have gone up. Um, you know, people are paying more for the same NOI. So, you know, I'm, that's led me to look at other markets. Um, you know, you're from Texas. I'm sure there's some people from California that are buying real estate here. I'm from Virginia. I like Georgia. Um, so we're looking at that. We're trying to, um, you know, diversify the asset class. We've got a lot of class A multifamily in Richmond. You know, we're buying some class C stuff down in Macon. We're buying single family deals. So, um, you know, I think there's still opportunity out there, even with rising interest rates. Um, you've just got to be a little more selective. And that's why I love to network with property managers because they find the best deals. And, um, you know, we've got a great one down in Georgia. It's a little too soon to talk about, but it's an SFR portfolio um, that came to me just because uh, I was networking with other PMs. Let's talk about the service that you're rendering to your uh, your property management clients. 
the syndication as a service to them. You could just manage the property, do mm -hmm. a good job. Right. To what degree have you created an opportunity that otherwise would not have existed for your current clients in yep. terms of inviting and bringing them into deals? Sure. That That's a great question. I've got one that comes to mind. Um, this was a guy that first approached me about a lease-only deal. I heard somebody say, oh, we don't do lease-only. Well, you never know who you're going to meet. But this guy said, hey, I've got this apartment. Can you just lease it out for me? It was in a, a mixed-use building in downtown Richmond. Um, I said, sure, no problem. We had coffee. And and he said, you know, if you see anything in the like four to $8 million range, let me know because I'd be interested in buying that. And I said, okay, well, it's a little bit out of my comfort zone at that time. I'd been in property management like three weeks. But <laughs> I knew, I really knew like, okay, this guy is onto something. He's going to do bigger things. So how can I help? And he was actually one of the equity guys that I placed into that first syndication. So he's now participated in, I want to say six deals with me has mm. 180 units just because we had coffee to talk about a lease only. So, you know, he felt confident, you know, we performed on that. We helped him renovate this other one. You know, we he's now invested in all these. So that's, you know, could he have placed his money elsewhere? Sure. But, you know, we've created a great r relationship. He's a good friend and, um, you know, it's a pretty sticky client for property management, right? I don't think he's going to go to one of my competitors mm. um, just because of that, that trust level that we have. Talk to me about the GPLP relationship and the privileges between the two. Sure. So a lot of folks go, man, I, I want to get in. I want to be a co-GP. Um, I want to come in with you on a deal. And that's fine. You got to be careful the way you structure that um, because that's where everyone thinks the, the GP or the syndicator is going to get all the fees, right? Um, so I think that's the biggest difference is that and let me I'll, let me suss it out an example. So that that first deal, um, I was in for fifty thousand. Um, I got a brokerage fee on the front end, so you know, it was two points on a two point eight million dollar transaction, right? So I was able to essentially roll my commission into equity. So I, I really had no cost basis in that investment, right? So the returns to me are infinite. Right. Because I, had, you know, money came in. I, of course, paid taxes on it, but, you know, reinvested it. You know, the LP is bringing after tax cash um, and getting, you know, a, a smaller return. Right. So you've got your 8% pref and then, you know, your IRR over the lifetime hold is usually going to be upper teens. Um, so that's kind of the difference between the, the two positions. Um, you know, we're, we're doing all the work. We're finding the deal we're spending. 90 days of due diligence, you know, before we got that under contract, we probably wrote offers on seven or eight other buildings. Um, so there's, when I started out, you were talking about fees and how you justify them, or do I discount because I'm an investor? Um, you know, starting out, I was cautious and, you know, nervous about it. Like, are they going to pay me for this? And over time you go, oh my gosh, I just busted my ass for, you know, four months. We This last deal, we we wrote an offer in March of 21. It took 12 months to close. Like, I can't tell you how many calls and emails we spent during that time. So we, you got to charge for that. And, and that's where, you know, as a general partner, we've, we've been really successful and um, really haven't gotten much pushback because you're just adding value to, to their life and to their portfolio. Yeah, that's relatable. I'm doing a very small deal. My first deal right now and the friend that is facilitating was um the fee structure was really low because he's newer to it as well and at one point he came back and he asked to 
raise some of the fees. And I thought about it and I thought about how much time he had exerted and how much could be left. And I thought, yeah, I think that's worth it. Like, I really want him doing this. I want him feeling good and like maximally invested in performing the act and come to find out it's ended up continue to take way more time than we thought. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's right. all, well, it's all working out. It's all worthwhile. Right. And that's great. And if you respect the expertise and value somebody else brings, and that's what I gave that example of my property manager that's doing the rehab. As a manager, I've never had anybody come to me and say, hey, well, you add $10,000 fee to my management agreement. Um, but I know how much work he was going to put in. I think he underestimated it. Um, so I was like, listen, I'm going to build this in. We're going to give you a bonus when you perform. Um, and it just creates such a much warmer, friendly relationship. Like, hey, I respect you. I know what you're going to do for me. I'm going to pay for that. So what about vertical versus horizontal? You could get your rocks off doing bigger and bigger deals within the same asset classes, you know, particularly with multifamily that will scale pretty aggressively, or you can go uh, sideways and you can do, get into some self-storage, some commercial. What are your preferences? What turns you on? Where do you see yourself going? Um, you know, I think um, if you go, over 100 units, there's so much competition out there. Um, there's a lot of institutional money coming down from the top. Um, I can't remember the stat, but I think it's like 54% of apartment buildings over 100 units are owned by some kind of institutional player. And I don't want to compete with them. So I kind of like these mid-sized deals. They've been really profitable for us. They're too big for um, a mom and pop investor, right? They're not going to go buy a $3 million building. Um, so I think there's less competition. I do like that space. I love residential. Uh, I did get out of out over my skis on a deal. Um, I I found a great off market opportunity for an industrial building, and um, this was a, you can call it a failure, I guess. But um, we had the property tied up at ten million dollars two years ago, and couldn't raise the capital. Couldn't close on it because people were looking at me, going, "You're a residential property manager. What do you know about this industrial building?" Um, it was actually a HVAC warehouse that had a great lease on it and I knew it was going to be a home run. It was going to, but it just came to me too soon. I think now I could probably pull it off. But, um, so I, I spent four months chasing it and trying to set meetings and just had to get out of the contract right before the deposit went hard. And, uh, that same building, of course, everybody knows what's happened to industrial since COVID, um, just sold at 14.5 million. So, it stings a little bit, but, um, you know, I, I've, I like to stay in my lane. So to answer your question, like wider, different asset classes, self-storage, there's a lot of people doing great things in that, but I just want to stick to, you know, SFR portfolios, small multifamily. Um, and if there's a great industrial deal, maybe I'll take a look at it. But, um, you know, yeah, again, you don't know until you try. What about build to rent? I would take a look at that. Yes. Yep. I had a, one of those cross my plate yesterday, a small deal in Richmond. Again, I would only do it with the right partner. I don't have time to go out and learn all the permitting and development aspects of it. But if I had somebody that did and all they needed was equity or property management and I could provide that and they could bring the other 70% of the skill sets, then, then I would consider it. The reality is I could go on and on because I find this extremely interesting as a, a highly related corollary to the bread and butter of property management. But at the end of the day, there's only so much conversation on one podcast. This is part of the reason for people to come to the summit. What's the website people can go to to, to, to look at and potentially purchase a ticket to the summit? Sure. It's uh, P 
pmsyndicationsummit.com, pmsyndicationsummit.com. Uh, we would love to have you. And uh, Jordan, maybe there's a promo code we can post in the show notes for your listeners. We'd love to give them a discount uh, and come learn the secret sauce in Richmond, Virginia. We'll leave it there. It was great having you on, and I'm looking forward to seeing you in Richmond later this year. Great. Thanks, Jordan. We'll leave it there. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.